0: Before we begin today's show, a quick message. Throughout this year, we've brought you stories on everything from creative methods to address the state's feral pig problem to deep dives on the psychological impact of incarcerating youth. On Louisiana Considered, we strive to tell stories that are diverse and thought-provoking. So if you like our show, you can donate at wrkf.org or wwno.org. Thanks. Now here's the show. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. On the show today, the NOLA Project Theatre Group and the New Orleans Museum of Art recently brought their 12-year partnership to an end. Reporter for Verite, Josie Abugov, joins us for more on why the collaboration splintered. But first... According to the Department of Natural Resources, Louisiana currently has 29,000 producing oil and gas wells around the state. The important word there is producing. But what happens to those wells when they stop producing, when a company goes bankrupt, or if the owners just walk away? Well, the state has some 16,000 inactive wells. LSU researchers say there are over 4,600 of those that are officially called orphan wells. And those wells could be leaking methane, a dangerous greenhouse gas. Thanks to a $3 million DNR grant funded by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, LSU researchers have been helping to find these orphan wells, estimate costs to plug them, and measure before and after the flow of methane into the atmosphere. Joining us are members of that research team, Associate Professor of Petroleum Engineering at LSU Craft & Hawkins, Ipsita Gupta, Kanchan Maiti, Chair of LSU's Oceanography and Coastal Sciences Department, and Greg Upton, Interim Executive Director for Social Costs and Financial Impact and Associate Professor of Research at the Center for Energy Studies at LSU. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Bob.
2: Thank you for having me. Thanks for having me.
1: What
0: does an orphan well mean?
1: An orphan well is an oil or gas well that is not producing any longer. It has been abandoned. Because it's not economically viable anymore, and uh, basically no one is claiming any legal responsibility for that well. It's truly orphan.
0: And why do they cause problems? What what's the concern?
1: Orphan wells, um, you know, either unplugged or improperly unplugged, can emit methane. Uh, methane is a potent greenhouse gas. There can be other harmful gases also that may be emitted uh, such as aromatic hydrocarbons orphan wells may leach contaminants gas and oil into surrounding soils and waters and in general they may be a safety hazard that prevent lands from being used for other purposes
0: Kenshin, as an oceanographer You mostly measure methane and other gases at the bottom of the ocean what are the challenges on land
2: that
3: was my major challenge on this project of moving what i do at the bottom of the ocean on land and the biggest challenge is a lot of these wells are on private land so we need to have permission and for that we're really grateful to department of natural resources they have allowed us to take the help of their inspectors who inspect these wells regularly to go with us every time. Uh, And that's the big difference between ocean. When we're going out in ocean, we have a general idea. We put our measurements down and get the measurements done. Whereas here we're so targeted.
1: Wetlands also emit methane. And in this study, what we have to make sure is that the methane that we are quantifying is actually coming from the orphan wells and not from the naturally occurring wetland emission, we have to distinguish between the two. And that's why um, this is a little bit more challenging. And that's why we are employing ground detection methods
0: in our study. How do you measure the levels on land?
3: So we have multiple sensors uh, that we take out with us. So we put boxes around it to stop the methane from losing to the atmosphere. We let the methane basically build up inside this box and then keep measuring as the methane is building up in this box. And by knowing the rate at which this methane buildup is happening inside the box, we can calculate the rate at which methane is coming out of these wells that it was encased.
0: Are there any dangers to taking these types of measurements?
3: Well, yes, uh, we have to be careful uh, that we do not go over what we call the lower explosive limit. So methane, when it is over 5%, it can catch fire. So we need to make sure we are not using pumps that can generate sparks, or even better, we don't want to go over that 5%. So we try to stop before we hit that limit.
0: Where have you been finding these wells?
1: So most of these wells, uh, we already have an existing data um, repository thanks to the Department of Natural Resources. They provide us with the geolocations of these wells. Um, So anytime the measurement team uh, from Professor Maithi's lab goes out, And uh, that's how we are finding these
0: wells. We're speaking with members of the research team from LSU who are investigating orphan oil and gas wells in Louisiana and measuring the leaking methane emissions from those wells. Greg Upton, why measure methane gas escaping from these orphan wells?
2: Methane emissions or methane is a greenhouse gas, like carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. Methane is, is also a greenhouse gas. And so one of the questions for us as scientists and as economists and one of the questions that we have is, you know, what is the full life cycle emissions of the oil and gas value chain? So, of course, we have a really good understanding of how much carbon dioxide is produced whenever we combust a gallon of gasoline, for instance. Um, but there's research ongoing of the upstream flaring and methane emissions and venting part of the industry. So that's when you're producing the wells, the producing the oil and gas, how much emissions might be coming out. And there's also now increasingly research that's really spurred by this program of how much emissions could be coming out of these older wells, you know, long after their life cycle. And so that's really, really what we're focusing on is we want to understand how much methane is coming out of these wells. Um, and then we want to assist the state, the Department of Natural Resources, to reduce the most methane emissions, given the amount of money that they have uh, have with the program.
0: Kenshin Maiti, in your search, have you found a lot of methane, very little methane?
2: The range is actually varied. There are well
3: heads which are perfectly well done, uh, very little methane coming out of them, very little corrosion to almost background level. Then we have found ones where you can actually hear the hissing sound of methane leaking, and those are big ones.
0: And Kenshin has provided us with a recording of one of those leaking wells they walked up on. what have you found so far in your search and your research of these wells
3: my short experience of going out on land and visiting these wells is every well is different we have to kind of rack our brain to figure out how we'll do the measurement what instrument to use because if the methane is coming out at a very very low rate we use instruments which are very sensitive but a very sensitive instrument doesn't work when the methane that is leaking is at a very high rate and so we have to switch instruments so our first order of business when we get to a wellhead is to kind of get a quick understanding of should we use an instrument that is right for this well and then we pick up that instrument and try to do it and that kind of tells us that there's a varied range of methane emissions some could be zero we have found ones with zero leakage and some could be as much as 10 kilograms per day Uh, so that's a wide range but in general we find that it is these big ones the big leakers that we call that contribute the most to the total methane that is being emitted from these wells.
0: What's the effect of plugging these wells? What, what does it mean to Louisianians at large?
2: Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, there are many reasons why you would want to plug an orphan well. The first is, of course, that, um, that, you know, it could be an eyesore, it's sitting out there. Um, the other thing, though, is that there could be emissions coming out of these wells. And so, if you have leakage of methane, of course, you're not going to see methane actually come out of the well. It's it's a gas that that you can't smell and you can't see. But if that gas goes into the atmosphere, that's going to impact the global climate. And so, there's there's also a reason why we would um, you know want to want to plug these wells in order to, to to reduce the the greenhouse gas intensity of our state.
1: Methane is actually 25 times more potent as. Uh greenhouse gas uh, compared to carbon dioxide. So in 2021, the United States joined an international methane pledge to reduce methane emissions um, 30% by 2030. And this is where all our project um, comes into. For Louisiana, we are an oil and gas rich state. We have legacy wells. We have a large number of these orphan wells, more than 4,500. We are also measuring the methane emissions, so we are able to prioritize which wells we should go and plug first. You know, from a petroleum engineering standpoint, you know, current focus on energy transition and CO2 sequestration efforts. An unplugged well is a possible leakage pathway to get into shallower reservoirs, shallower groundwater aquifers maybe, or even into the uh, surface. Now, if we have an orphan well that is unplugged, it may or may not be leaking, but it can potentially provide access to a leakage pathway for a CO2 plume. And so plugging these wells uh, will help us ensure that no such leakage pathway exists from the current orphan wells um in Louisiana so to me really it's um an environmental win it's an energy economics win and it's an energy transition um win for Louisiana
0: How does this play into CO2 sequestration that are on the drawing board now in the state
2: So carbon capture utilization and storage the idea is you're going to take some industrial process and you're going to have carbon dioxide emissions that come out of that industrial process And what we want to do is we want to capture that carbon dioxide instead of emitting it into the atmosphere. And then we want to transport it to a location where we can permanently sequester that underground. One of the things that uh, you want to make sure is that when you put that carbon dioxide underground, that it doesn't leak up. You want it to permanently stay underground, which is the entire which is the entire purpose. So one of the things that the geologists are are, and, and just researchers in general looking into, is if you have old well bores that were drilled and weren't properly plugged, that could actually reduce the ability to do carbon um, sequestration in in the, those locations. And so, a lot of the projects we're seeing are actually in areas that there historically wasn't oil and gas extraction. Um, because of that reason, you don't have those those wells that are being drilled.
1: That is, uh, that is something that, you know, I have thought of uh, when we pursued this um, opportunity, research opportunity. We weren't exactly thinking of CO2, but to me, because I'm from petroleum engineering and, you know, we are in the business of subsurface storage, whether it's CO2 sequestration, hydrogen storage, energy transition. To me, you know, it's an obvious part of the puzzle that fits into the whole picture, um, but As part of uh, this research, you know, we're not just measuring the methane emissions, we are ensuring that as we are prioritizing these wells, we are using and applying petroleum engineering concepts like, um, you know, what are the well characteristics, what are the reservoir depths, are there well reports that have shown in particular wells or demonstrated in particular wells, previous uh, leakages or damages that occurred earlier. And then we are helping um, and working with DNR to prioritize the plugging of these wells, because uh, 4,500 wells that are known are a large number of wells, and we are short on time on the climate agenda.
0: LSU Craft and Hawking's Department of Petroleum Engineering professor, Ipsita Gupta, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you, Bob.
0: Kanchan Maiti, Chair of LSU's Department of Oceanography and Coastal Sciences. Thank you for your time.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Greg Upton, Associate Professor of Research and Interim Executive Director at the Center for Energy Studies at LSU. Thank you for your time.
2: Thanks, Bob. Anytime.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Two of New Orleans' premier arts organizations have brought their collaboration to an end. The 12-year partnership between the New Orleans Museum of Art and the NOLA Project Theatre Group came to an abrupt halt over the production of a play, there are two different versions of how that collaboration fell apart. And joining us to help us sort it out is Josie Abugov of Verite News. Josie, thank you for joining us.
4: It's great to be here.
0: Briefly, what was the history of the collaboration between the NOLA project and NOMA?
4: So before the breakup in August, between the two groups, the NOLA Project and NOMA had more than a 12-year relationship. Actually, the NOLA Project had performed a show at the museum way back in 2006. I learned because it was one of the few venues in the city that had AC at the time following Katrina. But the relationship really began in 2011, when the artistic director of the NOLA project reached out to the museum and asked if they could perform a Midsummer's Night Dream in the museum's sculpture garden or Romeo and Juliet in their grand hall. And to the NOLA project's surprise, the museum said yes to both. From there, the NOLA project continued to perform a lot of different shows at the museum, more Shakespeare and classic shows, as well as spins on new classics and also contemporary plays, including White by James C. E. James, a dark comedy about a disgruntled white artist who hires a black actress to pose him so his work can be featured in an exhibit for artists of color. That was earlier this year before the, the downfall.
0: So jumping ahead from that uh, beginning time period, the NOLA project had a sort of awakening in 2020 when it looked at itself and the city in which it was performing. What did it see?
4: I think the NOLA project saw that it was no longer the small theater upstart that it began as, composed of 20-something undergrad transplants making their way in the city's art scene. And after 15 years, the group was no longer on the fringes. They were a predominantly white ensemble performing theater in a predominantly Black city. And so in 2020, amid protests and conversations about racial justice, the NOLA Project experienced its own racial reckoning. In some ways, they were responding to a letter addressed to white American theater signed by a large number of artists of color. And so the NOLA Project underwent a series of what I learned were necessarily uncomfortable conversation, as the artistic director described to me, which led to a community statement outlining the group's goals, and so after that, they outlined three main pillars that they wanted to address the actors in their shows the members of their board and the writers behind the shows. One year later, the NOLA project did document significant progress. People of color composed more than half of their ensemble, which was a lot more than what they started with when there was only one black person in their ensemble. And um, a number of their productions during the most recent year and the 2021, 2022 season were written by people of color.
0: At the same time, NOMA appeared to be on a similar track when it was being chastised for what some former employees called an anti-Black workplace culture. What did they allege?
4: These two organizations were both going through a sort of racial reckoning at the same time. Um, in 2020, a group of former employees of NOMA formed a collective called Dismantle NOMA or hashtag Dismantle Noma. Um, and accused, as you said, the museum of having an anti-black and they even use the phrase plantation like workplace culture. And this past summer, three years later, the museum gained national attention again for hiring a white curator for its African art section. And in response to these complaints back in 2020, the museum like the NOLA project released a statement acknowledging dismantle NOMA and pledging to increase diversity on its board develop a task force, and increase inclusivity more broadly and release regular reports of its progress, which it's done since.
0: We're talking with Josie Abugov, reporter for the Verite News, about the split between two New Orleans arts institutions, the New Orleans Museum of Art and the NOLA Project. So the breakup, Josie, what did you find to be the root cause of it?
4: So, the theater group and Noma hold different versions of the story, but the controversy does stem from the production of a play called The Colored Museum, which was pretty well known. It was written by um, a very established Black gay artist named George C. Wolfe, and the play satirizes Black stereotypes. Um, in the show, the stage is set up to resemble a white walled gallery. I can read from the um, the first page of the play. It's supposed to be in a gallery, a starkness befitting a museum where the myths and madness of Black, Negro, colored Americans are stored. And the NOLA project wanted to produce this play in the white walled gallery halls of NOMA. And they claim NOMA rejected its proposal to perform the color museum for the first time in in the history of the two groups partnership. This was, they said, the first time that the museum did not immediately greenlight a production that it had um, suggested. Now, NOMA says they didn't outright reject the NOLA project's proposal to perform the Colored Museum. Rather, they said that they really wanted to delay the production and to instead include a slate of programming to sort of contextualize this play in the context of the museum. Mm-hmm. And in statements from the museum, they also really emphasize that they are committed to diversity and inclusion within um, all of their programming and all of their work.
0: So what's your take on that?
4: Well, the NOLA project does acknowledge that NOMA had wanted to include more programming and delay this, but they interpreted that hesitation as really rejection. They didn't think that a delay from this season would end up ever really happening, and they were really skeptical of that. So they don't, the NOLA project was not saying that what NOMA was explaining to me was outright inaccurate, they just didn't really interpret the delay as a delay at all. And, and they really felt from conversations that it was a rejection. My take on it is, you know, I think that the NOLA project seems very excited about its sort of noma future for the time being. And I think this now much more diverse ensemble is really excited about the direction they're heading, um, kind of regardless of what exactly went down between NOMA. I see a lot of excitement and commitment to doing really cool theater from the NOLA project.
0: So what do you think about the future of these two arts groups? Can they patch things up and eventually get back together?
4: You know, I think time will tell. I'm really not sure. Um, When I spoke to two of the original founders of the NOLA project, they did express mixed feelings because they were One in particular was very involved in the beginning of this partnership and recalled a lot of really wonderful times working with the museum and respect for the museum writ large. Others, because this is a a group of many people, have different thoughts. A lot of the current members, for the time being, don't see themselves working with NOMA anytime soon. And from NOMA's comments, I think NOMA stressed again and again that they did not reject it they really wanted to delay the production so i think this is really in the hands of the nola project and right now they seem to be really looking at other venues to put on the Color museum in particular
0: josie abugav reporter for verite news thank you for your writing and thank you for your time
4: thank you for having me
0: Before we go today, a panel of federal judges will soon select a new congressional map for Alabama that creates a second district where black voters hold more sway. But as Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports, Alabama's Democratic Party objects to all three proposed maps.
5: The party argues the maps don't go far enough. Basically, they perform well for black voters when they prefer a white candidate, but the party projects a black candidate would perform poorly. Here's party head Joe Reed. Some of may want a Democrat,
1: but we want a black Democrat. So we're not, we're not, I'm not pleased at all with
5: it. But an attorney for some of the plaintiffs whose lawsuit started this case pushed back. She says these lawsuits were about Alabama diluting black voting power, and two of the maps solved that. Republicans object to all three maps, saying they illegally draw districts based on race, an argument the Supreme Court has rejected in the past. After hearing the objections Tuesday, the judges said they would decide on a final map soon to give election officials time to prepare for the 2024 election. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans, WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Thanks to our guests, Ipsita Gupta, Associate Professor of Petroleum Engineering at LSU, Kanchan Mighty, Chair of LSU's Department of Oceanography and Coastal Sciences, Greg Upton, Interim Executive Director for Social Costs and Financial Impact and Associate Professor of Research at LSU's Center for Energy Studies, and Josie Abugov, Reporter for Verite. Our Assistant Producer is Aubrey Procell. Our Engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and at 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at Rouse's.com with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.